When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast that picks out a refined selection of items from all our coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on your menu this week, food inspections start up in Pakistan. What the journey of a T-shirt says about African industrialization, and how to invest in art. But first, the world's most valuable resource was our cover line this week. Data have become the global commodity of our time, and just a few dominant companies are hoarding most of it. Old methods of regulating markets just aren't fit for purpose in the digital age. They need reforming, as our cover leader argued. A new commodity spawns a lucrative, fast-growing industry, prompting antitrust regulators to step in to restrain those who control its flow. A century ago, the resource in question was oil. Now, similar concerns are being raised by the giants that deal in data, the oil of the digital era. The world's most valuable listed firms are now all tech companies. These titans, Alphabet, Google's parent company, Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Microsoft, look unstoppable. With profits commensurate to their size. They collectively racked up over $25 billion in net profit in the first quarter of 2017. Amazon captures half of all dollars spent online in America. Google and Facebook accounted for almost all the revenue growth in digital advertising in America last year. What's more, their ballooning stores of data defend them against rival upstarts. The case for being sanguine about competition in the tech industry rests on the potential for incumbents to be blindsided by a startup in a garage or an unexpected technological shift. But both are less likely in the data age. All this means that the fundamentals of market competition are changing. Internet companies' control of data gives them enormous power. Old ways of thinking about competition, devised in the era of oil, look outdated in what has come to be called the data economy. A new approach is needed. So how should this thinking be revised? You can read the rest of our cover leader, as well as a four-page briefing on the data economy, in this week's issue. From data markets to food markets, we head to our Asia section. Pakistan is renowned for a lackadaisical approach to food safety, but as an article reported, regulators are hoping to clean things up a bit. Something catches the eye on Anakali Food Street in Lahore, the capital of Punjab province. Bakers are pulling naan bread out of a tandoor oven, just as they did when the 200-year-old bazaar was founded. By contrast, a contemporary detail stands out. Synthetic paper hairnets in a vivid shade of green. We are worried about the food inspector, explains Mohammed Aslam, as he wraps dough around a stone. 
The hawker's fear is inspired by patrolling members of the Punjab Food Authority, the first agency of its kind in the country. Founded in 2011, it has its work cut out. Some restaurants use rancid cooking oil, keep raw chicken on the floor or try to pass off donkey as beef. This level of food standards is sadly not rare here. Such a scandal is the state of hygiene in Pakistan's restaurants that television shows about crime often feature exposés of particularly abhorrent eateries using jerky footage from handheld cameras. Even those who serve with silver spoons aren't exempt and all try to keep things behind closed doors. Most of them do not welcome visitors to their kitchens. Your correspondent asked to enter several in Lahore in both down-at-heel establishments and ritzy ones and was barred each time. So will the inspectors be able to freshen things up a bit? Find out in this week's issue. Leaving Pakistan's dirty kitchens, we head to the Middle East and Africa section, which served up some lessons in industrialization. The section's leading article tracked the creation of a T-shirt to explore the potential of an industrialised Africa and the barriers it must overcome. Hundreds of bright blue T-shirts with the slogan Smile pass down a row of tables where they are inspected, folded, bagged and tagged. From here they will embark on an arduous journey of more than 1,000 kilometres. A lorry will haul them from Kampala, Uganda's capital, across Kenya to the port of Mombasa. A week later, they will be loaded onto a ship for Hamburg, Germany. We trace them from their final destination to point of origin. These shirts began as cotton bowls in fields on the equator in the far west of Uganda, where the red earth plains turn upwards into the ruined Zori Mountains. Where farmers face challenges, keeping the cotton out of the way of some rather big feet. Elephants sometimes rampage out of a nearby game reserve, and trample the neat rows of cotton. They plant barriers of chilli peppers and keep beehives to keep the jumbos out. Yet assuming all the produce isn't trodden on first, a wave of exports could be a boon to the region. After years of stagnation, East Africa's clothing industry has more than doubled its exports since 2009. But to be successful, lessons of the past must be learned. In 1990, African countries accounted for about 9% of the developing world's manufacturing output. By 2014, that share had slumped to 4%. As the world's labour-intensive jobs left the rich world for countries with lower wages, Africa lost out to Asia because of bad governance, political instability and poor infrastructure. Another shift of similar proportions now seems in the offing, as China grows richer. Time for a soupçon of Economist Radio's other output this week. And in the week ahead, Badgett columnist Adrian Waldridge joined me as the election campaign gets underway in Britain. I asked him why the Conservative Party seems to be doing so well in a time of populist challenge. They are absorbing the populist impulse. In other countries, populism has destroyed established parties. In Britain, because the Conservative Party has always been good at absorbing other parties, it's absorbed the industrial upper classes, it's absorbed the industrial working classes, it's absorbed the middle classes. It has a very indefinite ideology. It can absorb pressures from outside, and we're seeing that here. In this Wednesday's science and technology show, Babbage, we explored a new technique of bioengineering, which splits open cells, ditches the flotsam and jetsam, and puts the rest to good use. Here's Hal Hodson, our technology correspondent, explaining why researchers are trying to bypass nature's own method. 
The reason you want to do this in the first place is because when you try and use cells to make things, you have to grapple with the cell's own agenda. You have to work around the fact that the cell, for instance, wants to go on living and reproducing. And if you are making, say, a fuel that happens to also be a solvent, you might end up dissolving the very thing that is producing the solvent before it can make very much of it. And so cells and life in general is a little bit inconvenient. For your convenience, Babbage is available each Wednesday. In Money Talks, our weekly podcast on business, finance and economics, we reported on a new wave of support for Warren Buffett. Something of a cult of personality has been built up around the veteran American investor by young guns in a rather surprising country, China. Our economic editor, Simon Rabinovich, explained what lies behind the Buffett worship. There are a a variety of of rich foreigners who are popular in China, but Buffett does seem to be unusually popular. I think it's partly because his wealth, you know, derives from investment and in China, uh, the stock market is a very big thing. There's lots of investors who uh, fancy themselves as being sort of the second comings of Warren Buffett. Are there any budding Buffets out there? Take a listen to Money Talks to find out. For those wanting a little investment advice, look no further than our books and art section. We reviewed a handy new tome entitled Market Insights for Everyone Passionate About Art. It seems to offer exactly what it says on the cover. If it's the second week of May, it must be Venice. At least it is every other year. On May 13th, the art world descends on the Adriatic port for the biennial global art fest that turns the city into a parallel universe of the imagination. Among the hundreds of thousands of visitors will be Venice Biennale first-timers, all of them keen to learn how to tell their Hearst from their Hodgkin, the Giardini from the Judecca. A perfect read for the yacht journey over to the festival. These neophytes could do worse than take along Art Collecting Today by Doug Woodham, Christie's former president of the Americas. Mr Woodham's book is an elegant, amusing and perceptive guide to a market that is often long on hocus-pocus and short on transparency. Our reviewer enjoyed what it said about the way the art market really functions. Mr Woodham explains why buying art is easy and selling much harder, why the markets for artists such as Amadeo Modigliani, Yayoi Kusama and René Magritte are all very different, and why art buyers can fall foul of unintended consequences, including spats over cultural property, endangered species and taxes. And aside from lessons for the newbies, some words for the well-versed too. Art is more than just another asset class, which is why some of the book's finest anecdotes appear in special sections called Avoiding the Scoundrel's Corner, Parts 1, 2 and 3. Mr Woodham uses real examples to show exactly how collectors have let themselves be done over in the past. Don't be a dupe. Before we go, a final taste of our letters section this week. A reader wrote in regarding a recent article in our science section, which reported that a team of researchers had finally solved the problem of shoelaces untying themselves. Yes, indeed. From Nicholas Ward, Vienna. It has been my observation in recent years that the cords from headphones are increasingly able to generate knots of Gordian propensity within seconds of being left to their own devices. I believe the materials scientists already have the answer. Were all shoelaces made from headphone cord and vice versa, life would be measurably freer from stress. 
With that vital problem untangled, we're at the end of this week's tasting menu. Don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find some other podcasts too online. Keep sending your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. We do read them. In London, this is The Economist. Thank you.